I see value in being a specialist and a niche investor. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome to the Rise and Invest Show. I'm your host, Drew Brenneman. What I'd like to do on this, this show is get into the details on doing real estate deals as a principal, having people that uh, would, would help you or facilitate the, the transaction on the show, and kind of get into the weeds on stuff you might not read in a book or, or have learned in school. So with me today is Mike Mazur, a great friend of mine and head of business development at American Postal Infrastructure. He's been a part of acquiring an astounding 450 properties in the last two and a half years. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Drew. All right, great. But yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of great conversations over the years, uh, a lot of good insights. So looking forward to getting into that here today. So kind of maybe before we dive right in, why don't you tell us a little bit about your backstory, maybe your career history? So I um, graduated from University of Wisconsin in 2009, degree in finance and real estate. First, I was in the trading industry. Uh, we would trade futures on economic activity. For So, for example, non-farm payroll number comes out or uh, there was a, a treasury auction going on. It would affect futures. So we would trade at very fast speeds. It was a fascinating way to learn about macroeconomics. But overall, uh, desire to be in the real estate industry never went away. So when the real estate job market thought a little bit, I uh, ended up ultimately working for a company that uh, would acquire ultra luxury high-end malls for institutional capital called uh, Miller Capital Advisors was the name of the company. It was a fascinating place to learn about underwriting. Spent seven years after that working for a uh, suburb Chicago suburban real estate private equity company called Westminster Capital. We would invest in a lot of startup, or I'm sorry, a lot of ground up and uh, opportunistic type of real estate, predominantly across five asset classes, multifamily, senior living, industrial, medical office, and self-storage. Uh, it was a fascinating way to really learn about different asset classes. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And uh, I picked up my MBA at University of Chicago along the way. And then um, I've, the past two and a half years, I've gone from a more generalist real estate acquisitions role to a very niche role where running acquisitions for a platform that only invests in USPS properties throughout America. Postal service properties. Yeah, postal yeah. service properties. And we have... Uh, we have over 450 under our belt today. Uh, it's been an acquisitions tear, in my opinion. Uh, at Westminster, we're used to acquiring a couple deals a year compared yeah. to, you know, trying to, I think we've got 30 under contract this month. Wow. So then I guess kind of just starting at the, just at the beginning. So did you major in finance and real estate or how'd you get going with the, the trading job? Double majored in finance and real estate. Uh, it was a, a popular double major for folks who were interested in maybe the more analytical aspects of commercial real estate. I tried I tried to 
break into the industry directly out of undergrad, but it was a time in 2009 where where it was it was incredibly difficult to find a job in the industry. So I was really lucky to find to use the finance side of my education and go into a little little different field that's more focused on just like traditional investing and future specifically. And like I said before, it's just a great way to learn about macroeconomics, what the market pays attention to. Yeah. Um, and having that general knowledge has been uh, great to have through my real estate career. So then at, uh, at Westminster, I mean, what, what are some like big takeaways or, or things you would have learned there? Sure. So Westminster was a small shop with a lot of, uh, uh, folks with folks that worked at a lot of institutional places prior to joining Westminster. So it was run with very experienced group of guys, but there weren't a lot of them. So I want to say there were about a dozen of us when we worked there, when I worked there. And, uh, the main takeaway was commercial real estate requires a lot of direct responsibility, personal responsibility when you work in a, a small uh, team like that. So it wasn't unusual for um, me to pitch a deal to our investment committee and they'd go, great job, Mike. Now uh, go lease this thing up. Go, well, guys, I uh, lease this thing up eventually. They'd be like, great, now go sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and then right. so, uh, so going through the investment cycle is something that I think is more unique at a smaller shop. At larger shops, it's not unusual to see an acquisitions team uh, very specific asset management team, sometimes even a specific disposition team. And so um, having that personal responsibility at, at a small shop, I think, was uh, was incredibly rewarding. And I, I learned quite a bit that way. I mean, I've even seen uh, acquisition shops where they have the acquisition st stuff segmented, where right people who only source or people who only underwrite and get the deal approved, and then people who only pick it up to do due diligence or to close it or only do research. So that's great. I mean, doing deals full cycle, the, you know, American postal infrastructure shop. I mean, what are some things you've, you've done there? You've learned there. I mean, that's so many properties you've acquired. Yeah. So for, uh, when working at Westminster capital, it was, uh, a combination of direct investing and working with joint venture partners. Uh, and sometimes the assets existed already. Sometimes it was a concept and, uh, uh, pure development from, from just a land land play, uh, the USPS properties are all existing properties, and just given the nature of you think about your local post office, it's pretty rare that your local post office was built over the past five, ten, even twenty years. And so uh, we went from really sexy brand new product to hey, did you know the property you're acquiring is from the '60s or '70s, or or even later? You know, having having a key eye on costs associated with maintaining the building was something that uh, is a much larger emphasis, I feel like, when you're buying existing assets. Um, the other thing, too, was we had to put together a acquisitions process from scratch, uh, which was something that, you know, at Westminster had a style of going through that. For us, we had to figure out how can you acquire 5, 10, 50 properties at once or within a short period of time, do it efficiently with a small shop and continue, continue to source other opportunities as you take down those assets. And so it was a much putting together institutional steps where there weren't any, uh, was, was fascinating. And yeah. I, it was like, uh, 
it felt very entrepreneurial, even though we're, we're backed by a major institutional investor that uh, it, it was very rewarding to, to try to figure out the systems necessary to process that, that many deals at once. Then being the head of acquisitions or head of business development, I mean, you're, I mean, who's, who was setting up those systems? We were. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, at first, uh, when I joined, I think I was employee number three. So basically you and another person or two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it was, um, it was interesting. Like, um, it's interesting about postal product in general is that there are over 20,000 privately owned post offices throughout the country, but a lot of the folks that own them are not real estate investors like you drew. And so things like, can we make a uh, contract uh, be easy for someone who's not in commercial real estate to grasp, but also have it be a meaningful purchase and sale agreement to us as institutional investors? Uh, and so uh, we thought about those types of things along the entire process, knowing that some investors we would have to help handhold along the way. For when we acquired their assets and other times we didn't, where they, where we had, uh, we're working with investors who had several hundred properties. Uh, and as we acquired their buildings, it was a much different process. And so it's unique. You went on to Crexy or uh, LoopNet or one of those other investment platforms. You could find a post office for sale sometimes as cheap as like 40 or $50,000. Uh, you know, sometimes they're a couple million bucks per deal. But it that leads to a completely different type of investor than maybe what you're used to arise. So you guys streamlined basically a purchase contract, uh, just kind of so then you when you're buying a post office or postal property, you you probably tell the owner like we have a standard contract we use. It's fair. So this is like a a way to get them you know not worried about legal costs or what what the process is. You guys explain we have a process. Absolutely. And that's meaningful because our reputation within the industry, given that we only acquire one asset class, is really important to us. So it's important that we're viewed as being fair, easy to work with, and have a streamlined process for both types of investors. Investors who have just one property, investors that are more familiar with being having their buildings acquired by somebody who's institutional like them. And so um, that that has been a very important part. And frankly, um, the preference tends to be for, for us to provide them with a purchase and sale agreement because um, a lot of those investors don't have one on hand um, or they don't want to necessarily go through the legal costs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it's it's been really important for us, not just on the purchase and sale agreement side, but this is the process. This is what our due diligence process looks like. This is what it means for you. Um, sometimes it's um, uh, the estoppel forms, for example. Sometimes the sellers aren't familiar with what an estoppel is. Yeah, Post we off. should maybe explain what an estoppel is. Yeah, so what an estoppel is basically is uh, uh, you have a lease that's enforceable uh, that's been signed by both the landlord and the owner. What an estoppel does basically is it verifies uh, that what is being described in the lease is accurate and it's being verified by the tenant themselves. There's always a chance that for whatever reason, the lease you're looking at is not not being enforced or maybe it's not being honored. And so figuring out that type of information is meaningful. 
the USPS estoppel form is called the lease status report. So they they wouldn't call it an estoppel, but it's effectively treated that way. And uh, what they also do in that, which is very helpful for us, is they tell us if there's any outstanding maintenance issues that haven't been handled. Uh, and so it's just another check uh, through our due diligence process that that is very meaningful to us. And usually, I mean, uh, a lot of times the person acquiring the property is making an estoppel, but this is more like a USPS form. I know I have one <laughs> postal property in that. I think it would look more like a letter almost. It does almost. look more like a letter. Okay. Yeah. yeah, nice. I mean, what else have you guys done? I mean, systems-wise, because, you know, it's it's interesting maybe for Horizon Invest. I mean, yeah, we're, you know, just similar to uh, Westminster, I guess, in terms of the pace of deals where it's like a few a year. I think we've closed maybe as little as two and as much as six, you know, in a year. So then that year, a lot of our systems, it's more about finding and getting to the property. And then from there, it's so it's... uh. There's not as much, there are systems for post-closing, but then it's kind of more like all hands on deck versus like, uh, I mean, if you're acquiring 30 properties at once, you need this every, every step's written down. There's a whole process around everything. Absolutely. And so some of the things that help, for example, are uh, good relationships with your due diligence team that helps you determine the environmental uh, due diligence that you have to do and the due diligence you do through property condition review. And so we, we've had an excellent relationship with our, ex, our existing uh, uh, consultants that help us with that. There's a weekly meeting that we go through. I think, I think a big part of it is a combination of being able to let the other acquisitions team members know where you sit with any one deal. So one thing that we do is we've got a, a weekly report that comes out that says, here's the status of the deals. Here's where we are within the due diligence process. Have we initiated our normal due diligence yet? What's holding us back? Where are we on the purchase and sale agreement process? Because one thing that's, that might not be intuitive to the audience is that sometimes even though you've agreed to terms, that doesn't always mean that you're going to have a signed contract you know, within a day or two. And sometimes it might mean that you don't have a signed contract at all for X, Y, Z reason. Part of the reason behind that we found is sometimes sellers think they want to sell. And then when they actually speak to some of their financial advisors, they don't want to, whether it's for tax reasons or they're not sure what they would do with the cash. Or, uh, you know, sometimes you realize, especially when dealing with uh, smaller owners, that a yes is more like a probably. Interesting. Uh, and, and so it's... Uh, the conviction of actually wanting to sell isn't always there. Other times it's sincere. By the time they're speaking to you, a potential purchaser of their property, they're ready to go. And it's a, it's a yes. And it's all hands on deck and they wish they would have closed yesterday kind of thing. Because to acquire the property, you guys are going LOI first, full purchase contract. Correct. There's so much more in a purchase and sale agreement where I, for sure on the types of deals we do, people reel into the weeds on the details. Um, and they, yeah, it's common for us to take three weeks uh, to get done um, or sometimes even more. But yeah, it's happened to us too, where we've had a deal under LOI. We go to a purchase contract and we either can't agree on the terms and then we, we you know, someone tries to be flexible, but maybe the market's moving and then they don't want to sell anymore. Uh, so or there's a new price. Uh, I mean that, yeah, a lot of things can happen in that, um, you know, I, I would assume too with these people, if they only own one property and they're selling this, they're not, they're not sure what the contract should look like, or they get some advice from their attorney. Maybe it's good advice or not. And then they, um, 
you know, it's maybe a, you know, could lose a deal there. Right. Uh, yeah. We've had situations where we put together a letter of intent and then we send over a purchase and sale agreement. And it's like, I thought I had already signed this contract. Why are you yeah. giving me another contract? And so it's like, uh, you can completely understand why somebody who's not familiar with the sales process would be confused by that. Cause it is, it's like, hey, you've laid all the terms already. Why do I have to sign a thing? That's, that's, that's more cumbersome, but, but it's, it's just uh, a function I feel like of, uh, our space in particular. Cause then, you know, with, let's say a, I mean, for people watching, listening you, if you're buying, let's say a house or maybe a residential property, a lot of areas, there's like a realtor form contract where you fill in the blanks and then you're sort of sort of done if you sign that, like that's the contract. But on a commercial deal, usually it goes LOI first. That's sometimes it's like a, I mean, a one to maybe five page document. And that really just outlines all the key terms, you know, price, earnest money, closing date, who pays for what uh, in terms of closing costs or commissions. But then the actual purchase contract, that's more like a, depending on how complicated the deal is, anywhere from, I mean, normally from 20 to 80 pages, depending. And so then, yeah, there's a lot more details in there. Uh, so then when I get that, they're like, wait, I thought we had this deal done already. But that's actually, the LOI is usually not binding, uh, except for, you know, sometimes there's things in there that are binding, like don't, you can't put up the property for sale or talk to other buyers. It, um, but yeah, that's, no, I, I get it. That's, that's interesting. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. So kind of going back a little bit to the streamlining process, uh, where we are within a due diligence cycle and likewise where we are within the cycle that, that happens before you have a signed contract is something that we're actively discussing throughout the week as a team. And, uh, it's been, I, I feel like having a team-based conversation around the status of different, um, of different parts of the deal cycle helps us tremendously make sure that, that everybody understands where we are because, uh, we have separated out a bit now going from, you know, being employee number three or four to, uh, running a larger team within our organization, we have siloed out some of those responsibilities. Um, but still it's very helpful for us to check in because the point person on the deal from the, um, business development or acquisition side is no longer running the process on the due diligence side, but they have to know where the deal stands so that they can continue, continue to have that dialogue with, uh, with the seller. So when do you guys, so you have a, you have like a deal status meeting and then a meeting a separate meeting for like new deals or how does, what do the meetings look like? Yeah. So we'll have a deal status meeting dedicated to, uh, where we are within the cycle. Sometimes it's a formal meeting. Other times it's just uh, an email that comes out on like Monday. Okay, okay. This is, this is where we stand. This is when we're expecting to get our due diligence reports, notify the seller so they know. I mean, one of the things we're trying to avoid along the way, especially when, um, working with with our our sellers is trying to avoid surprises along the way we want them to know when our due diligence they know per the contract when our yeah. due diligence process is going to end but they might not necessarily know when we're expecting to get our reports back and when we expect to actually have com have completed our due diligence so you know we try to keep our due diligence time frame and closing time frame as tight as we can um but what we don't want is Hey, uh, why, why are you responding at five o'clock on the, uh, end of your due diligence timeline that 
there is a huge environmental issue here. Why didn't you say that earlier? Yeah. And it's like, well, first of all, those types of concepts are extremely rare within the post office business, but it's just like, sometimes it's just a function of, well, we didn't get this report back until this morning. We had to review it. And so, you know, it's uh, having that dialogue during the due diligence process helps everybody. I feel like when those types of issues come about, so that communication um, between buyer and seller, even though it's not required to keep them up to date um, in the contract, it's very helpful because at the end of the day, it's, it's, two organizations or two people doing a deal together. A lot easier communicating the way through versus just having surprises form along the way. Right, exactly. And so uh, we do have a, a status meeting about where we are um, pre-purchase and sale agreement being signed. Conversations we have about what what's important to the seller. Some, I mean, one thing that's interesting is that uh, uh, knowing why the seller wants to sell uh, sometimes can explain why it takes them a long time or a short time for them to uh, sell the properties. Recently bought a few properties from people who didn't want to sell. You know, they just chose to go missing for a while or, you know, it's uh, or it's just someone really wants to sell. They're, you know, they're right there ready to give you the info. So, yeah, I know what you're... So, so it's, uh, it'll be a frustration when we feel like we've come to terms, but we haven't. Yeah. Uh, where we're still waiting and like... Uh, what have you found some of the reasons why people don't want to sell well, or what, want to sell so quickly? I mean, usually for, for us, since we're not probably not buying off just individuals, you know, one-off owners as much as you would be, but yeah, usually they, they want to sell. They got something else they want to put the money in, you know, another deal to do or um, some sort of timing thing. Well, yeah, I really like hearing about all the, the, the processes, different things you guys have done. Um, so then the, the meetings that you guys have, the why don't you tell us a little bit more about what those are like specifically? Sure. One thing, quick, we you know we just started at Rise doing uh, two weekly meetings where we didn't we didn't have a lot of meetings until until recently, um, but we ended up finding we have basically four people all working on different stuff. Like one guy's doing AI machine learning, building out our model, just more or less on his own. Uh, then another person's going back and auditing all of our past deal returns, all the distributions, all the contributions, calculating everything. And one person sourcing deals without other ones underwriting and sourcing. So it was pretty interesting even being just a team of four. Like we, some people didn't know what we were even working on because they were just working on their one thing. So we started right. a meeting on Mondays where we just go into what we're all working on and we share ideas. Uh, we uh, started doing, doing that meeting and then rolling into like a deal meeting, but then these things became like three hours long. So we're, um, we're trying to break out the deal meeting part now, or maybe we'll do that on like Wednesday where the team meeting we were doing on Mondays. Um, so yeah, why don't you, I mean, if you want to. Yeah, dive sure. In absolutely. A bit. So we have a Monday meeting as well. It's really just a calibration meeting for our internal acquisitions team where it's like, uh, what are, what are we focused on this week? Uh, are there certain niche sellers within, within that we want to, um, chat with uh are there things that we should be doing within our broker channels that we should be paying attention to i mean in a lot of ways we view broker channels as partners of ours uh just because uh they're an incredible source of deal flow even for a niche asset class like post offices um and uh, uh those relationships are keenly important to us so we spend time discussing um, those relationships, what we're doing internally to make sure that we're reaching out to folks that we'd like to reach out to. 
um, whether it's uh, uh, touch with marketing materials, direct conversations with them. Uh, there's just uh, uh, so many different ways to go about it when um, the majority of properties that are traded within your industry never really um, make it formally to like the, the public channels. Yeah. And so uh, we'll, we'll have conversations around that. Um, we'll have, uh, and, and part of it too was a simplification throughout the week. For example, this month we've got 30 properties that roughly we're trying to close on. How do you do that? How do you discuss new deals uh, throughout the week in a way that's just not total chaos? Right. And or if you go through 30 one by one, this is a right. all day meeting if you get too much into the details on them or exactly so one of the other things that we've started to implement is reducing reducing email traffic but also making emails more impactful so uh instead of sending out 12 12 uh, deal related emails throughout a day uh, if we have a particularly busy day we've cut everything down to just two emails related to new deals and discussions around existing deals uh, and it's uh it, it saves your email box, but it also makes whatever you're discussing internally more meaningful and those emails more meaningful because, you know, if you don't make one of those two emails, you're, you're, you know, your deal is going to be discussed. And likewise, the, the pertinent inter, in information for each deal has to be uh, truncated in such a way where you're getting all the information you want uh, to the uh, investment team, but then there's also... Uh, but it's not too overbearing. And so, uh, we'll have me, we'll have a meeting throughout the week, usually in the middle of the week that talks about where we are within a deal cycle, what we could do to, uh, capture the interest of a seller that maybe isn't so, uh, keen on selling in the near future, or maybe they do want to sell, but they're, they're waiting on XYZ thing. So that's why uh, having conversations around why they're looking to sell or they're having an understanding of their urgency. Are they waiting around for another property to that they can acquire before they're thinking about selling to you? Um, is it a state reason that's delaying uh, sale or is has an estate reason triggered their desire to sell and they want to sell very quickly? Uh, so understanding motivations is a big part of what we discuss throughout the week. Then informally, um, I have found that uh, having like an informal, call it Friday happy hour or something like that, even even with no alcohol involved or anything, but just to get together with the team and talk about uh, things that have been particularly challenging that, that day has had a very big impact on how we recalibrate for the following Monday. Interesting. And then what, where do you guys do that? I mean, just at the office? Sometimes at the office, we've gone out a couple times to do, to do that. I think the most important thing is that people feel like they can, um, air out their grievances, whatever they are throughout the week, or are there ways that we can make the acquisitions process better? Uh, and so it's just an, it's informal on purpose yeah. so that it might, uh, open up a dialogue about things that we hadn't considered. That's a great idea. I mean, one thing I'm always trying to do with the team is get them to like, give me feedback. Like I tell them like I want feedback or if we're in a meeting, like I want everybody to talk of been in other meetings and things where it's like only the, like the owner talks basically or the president, um, or no other people have ideas. They don't feel comfortable sharing them. 
Um, so I, you know, kind of want the opposite of that for my shop. Sounds like you're doing that with that meeting. I just think that it's, uh, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a team that has to work together. Uh, and you know, there's always great ideas that come up, Hey, maybe we could do X, Y, Z better. You know, that's, that's what triggered our conversations into having less email traffic. And there's ways that we've been trying to keep track of our pipeline of deals better and to streamline them and to make them make it easy for everybody to quickly take a look at, at where they are in the deal cycle. And that's uh, part of that is like uh, deciding what's the best technology. You know, uh, if it's just you looking at deals at home, maybe having a bunch of post-it notes on your monitor is fine. But if you're looking at dozens of deals uh, throughout a week or a month, you might be better off having an Excel spreadsheet or something through like a CRM type of system uh, where it's online and you can keep track better that way. And I feel like uh, keeping track of of deals in the last time you had uh, kept in touch with the seller, uh, I think part of it matters how many deals are you looking at at once and there's different systems based on that. How many people are looking at deals, how many people are made, you know, trying to get a hold of owners. I mean, it depends on what, because if it's just you, you might as well just like write it down in a notebook or something. But, right. But then you got to make sure you write it down every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah, we've been doing a bunch of demos of different systems, you know, like deal path and Salesforce and another one that I'm, the name's slipping my mind, but it's like, you keep track of like literally everything, the deals you're looking at, deals you're doing, deals you own. You can take a picture of the art you got in the hallway and categorize it or the age of the HVAC. And if you don't want to say, let's not do it, but like what system do you guys go with? What are you guys using for that? So, uh, so we just use a, uh, a CRM system called HubSpot. Oh, okay. Nice. Helps, helps us keep track. I've uh, heard, uh, I mean, HubSpot, they have really good, uh, like a newsletter and email capabilities too. That's how I've heard of them. I mean, it's a full CRM. It's a full CRM and it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of really good CRMs out there. It's not like uh, we just, we found one that worked for us. Um, but it's, uh, we've been trying to push as much as we can into that CRM so that there's a, the way that I think about it is there's like a cloud for us to, that's specific to acquisitions where it's like we could, uh, we could have everything on uh, like a OneDrive or a Google Drive or something like that where we have different folders that just say, hey, this, these deals need to be underwritten. These deals uh, need feedback on pricing. Um, but we have found actually that through CRM system, which, which to me, those types of systems give you a tickler to do something. Hey, underwrite this deal. Hey, yeah. did you? And so when you, when you combine um, keeping track of deals with a system like that, that is designed to remind you of important things that you have to do, uh, we have found that it's been a lot better as our team has grown. Okay, nice. Is there, in HubSpot, is there like a mapping feature? You can view properties on a map or? We don't view properties on a map through HubSpot. That's not to say that doesn't exist. Because that's what, we went with Salesforce and the re, and it was, it was, once we saw that their, how they did their map, it was like game over. Basically, it's just, it's right on the Google regular map. And then you're, you put the address in, it creates basically a, contact property pin whatever you want to call it there and then so you could if you're calling let's say somebody on one property uh you see where it is you can you visualize where all the other stuff you got in the system is yeah that's good and so it's like it's interesting when you think about it from um 
from like a real estate acquisition standpoint, most people probably assume you're spending most of your time in Excel or Argus or something like that, and you wouldn't need a customer relations management tool that will help you track deals. Right. But when you realize that acquisitions and sales aren't so different, you see the value in that. Um, and so it's it's just it's taking all of the analytical aspects that you're doing and uh, and recognizing that you're going in the you're going through a sales cycle of finding opportunities. Um, it's, it wasn't intuitive to me for a long time, actually, in real estate. I was like, why would I need a customer relations tool? I'm an acquisitions guy. And then you kind of realize over time that, uh, yes, but this is really going through a sales cycle of finding deals. The prior places maybe you're, you're at, it was a lot more inbound. You know, with someone who wanted LP Capital or a broker who had a deal. Correct. You guys could just buy directly. Uh, where this is more just where you guys are buying broker deals, you're talking to brokers, you're talking to owners where now, and there's, you know, more than one person on the acquisitions team. So then you need one place to put everything. So it makes total sense. And we sort of came to the same conclusion this year. Once we had four or five people touching everything, then it was, you know, like a spreadsheet is not going to work. I mean, four people have it open, you can't even save it. So you're in doing the postal strategy. I mean, that's a real like niche asset class. I mean, was that, you know, did this sort of fall into your lap, this opportunity or something you were looking for? I mean, yeah, sure. So um, I see value in being a specialist and a niche investor. That's not to say that there isn't tremendous value in um, being more of a generalist. It, I think part of it is your, um, your limited partners or your capital source has to ask themselves, do they want a one-stop shop that prioritizes maybe opportunistic deals, but they're not, they're not focused on any one asset class, or do you want your investor to be focused on one asset class because you have a relationship with dozens, dozens of other real estate investors that are focused on one asset class and you're kind of, you know, you're sprinkling your chips across different managers. I see value in being uh, an expert in your, in your space. Um, and so, uh, I was at a generalist shop, which I, which I think was a great solution for folks like what I had mentioned where they, they want a one-stop shop that is focused on significant returns. And, uh, and I, I really wanted to see what it was like to go the other way where it's like, you're, you're focused on a, a super niche in, in my, in my view, post offices is a super niche yeah. uh, because, because you're, you're dealing with one tenant throughout the country. Um, they're incredibly valuable to you. You pay close attention to what's happening to them operationally and how they're changing over time. And, uh, it's just very different from being like, oh, here's, here's almost a dozen asset classes that we focus on. We're in different, uh, cities throughout the country that are like secondary markets. It's just a different approach. And, uh, I have, I've enjoyed both types. My, my preference on being an expert in one space and just focusing predominantly on one sector has been incredibly rewarding. Uh, and I, I really like that type of investing in particular. And so, uh, it came, it did fall in my lap, so to say, uh, I was contacted by a headhunter when I wasn't looking for a job and they said, you know, part of the conversation was, did you know you can buy a post office? As a, as a private investor. I was like, this, this is very strange, but I would like to learn more. And yeah. so, you know, over time I, I did learn more. 
it's it's the niche type of investing styles that I think generates really meaningful returns for investors. And and the reason why I think that is because investors at more investors have a choice. I feel like uh they can go on the open market and buy a REIT index. And so it's like, what are you doing that's different from the REIT index that uh, would justify, you know, spending extra money in like a niche? And so, so that's why my preference is for a niche uh, versus being a generalist. Uh, I, I, I think that there's incredible value to that. Uh, and I mean, you know, you have your niches as well. I know you've invested across asset classes. Um, maybe you have any comments on this? Yeah, well, in terms of for sure, uh, like the strategy of your firm makes total sense where we're going to buy these post offices one at a time for 500 grand to like a million something each. And then I just, you know, I assume the the plans where you build a portfolio of enough size, you know, and then it's more of an institutional buyer at the end, which is a totally different profile, what they can pay, what the kind of returns are looking for. So there's a, a huge portfolio premium to what you guys are doing. I'd imagine, you know, the product types I've been in, um, and the deal sizes I've been looking at, they weren't super niche. So then I didn't never thought we had that portfolio premium. So I haven't done done that. But yeah, what I realized so I've done just as a principal, an office deal, a couple industrial, bunch of retail, small shop deals, and like dozens of apartment deals. And for me it was it was, you know, it was actually fun to be in all the different product types and to do uh to do it. It was a real challenge because one minute you're working on something with Freddie and Fanny and the next year doing some sort of office renewal thing where you're uh, hearing it from the leasing broker or something. And they, um, so that was, that was, you know, kind of fun in a way when it was just me. But what I really realized, like the people who want to invest, like they, they really want like a true expert. So as you pick up more investors then like, what's your, what's your edge, you know? And then if you just go, well, I buy every product type and, uh, these two markets, it's not as impressive as like, well, we just focus on like multifamily and just these like two or three areas only. We know them block by block. We got, I totally understand the product type. Um, so the investors, I realized like it a lot. And then as you grow a company, it's a lot, lot easier to um, to have the people be specialized where if we were going to do something and we were still in all those product types, uh, you know, and as you build it, your team, like you'd have to train someone on how to do a multifamily deal, an office deal, and then retail, like all these different product types that are all quite a bit different. And a lot of the like nuances of each, like it's not that easy to, to teach quickly. Uh, and then also the asset management would all be different where the person who would asset manage a apartment deal would be a lot different than who would do maybe like an office property where that's much more about leasing and renewals where, you know, there's a, there's a lot more like operational piece with multifamily that i mean that's what i've i've realized but i haven't done anything super niche um where yeah i think that's uh like an incredibly deep niche is only you guys have just one tenant right. even you know even if someone did only industrial in one city they might have hundreds of tenants bunch of different deals so yeah you guys are um uh, so i'm sure you guys have saw something similar where you get sent a postal deal and you just know immediately if it's something you can buy or not at this we do point. and uh um to go to your point a little bit about uh, portfolio premium and uh, uh, scaling an otherwise non-institutional asset into an institutional size. Um, I think I think the dynamics change when you're a portfolio owner. 
And uh, what I mean by that is if you only owned one post office property, um, if that tenant leaves, you know, if you have a post office in the West Loop or somewhere around here, there's there's really excellent dark value. And what dark? Okay, West Loop is a neighborhood in. Sorry, uh, West then, Loop is a neighborhood here in Chicago. And, and then uh, dark value, like if a tenant moves out, it's a it's a hot area, so you'll be fine uh, re-renting the property. It's not like your your values, uh, you know, killed. But in, in then your next point in a rural area. Yeah, in a rural area, if if you only one run one post office there, if you only own one post office in a rural area, uh, it's different because post office is most likely one of the strongest or strongest tenants in in that area um they're they're very important to the communities they serve in particular in rural america um but if you had a portfolio of hundreds of them your risk profile looks more similar to just like the general post office market which is still a huge niche but uh the way that you might approach leasing the way that you might think about um, dark value for that one asset when you've got hundreds of others, it just, it changes. So we spent a lot of time thinking about the significance of the post office, which we're acquiring. Why is it important to the USPS? How are the, how do the rents look compared to the rest of the market? But it's, and that's something that an individual investor who owns maybe one post office would, would be keenly focused on at their single asset. But, uh, um, Having a having a general appreciation for the benefits of being in a portfolio, knowing that, um, you know, as as you scale, you end up looking more like the general post office market. I think there's tremendous value, and it gives you confidence when you're uh, discussing renewals or you're thinking about the valuation of your portfolio over time, um, uh, and having that institutional scale. Yeah, you can get way more aggressive. I'm sure on a renewal where the individual owner, they have just one property. I mean, if the tenant moves out, there's no income where for, if you've got hundreds of them, it doesn't move the needle as much if one of the post offices closes. So obviously you guys can get more, uh, yeah, more aggressive on renewal. It Like the most interesting aspect to me is uh, you're not owning an asset that somebody else can own as well, but at scale, it completely changes uh how you view that individual asset and uh and it's it's just an an interesting way of providing value just by being big and then i mean just roughly what do you think uh maybe as like a percentage what do you think's like the portfolio premium i mean you build to uh you're building this portfolio without not maybe not using like cap rates or something but just as a percentage of uh value created it's a great question my hope is that you would have a premium that's maybe 50 to 100 basis points below. Uh, maybe it's much better. You know, oh, that's in terms of that's a, a cap rate. Yes, yeah, sure. So then in terms of the actual value being created, what is that like a 25%, 20% premium maybe? What do you think? It's, it's hard to say. Part of the reason is because we haven't, we haven't uh, entertained like potentially selling ourselves yeah. today. Um, I, I think but I, I think that the reason why there would be a premium is the difficulty associated with acquiring so many post offices. Um, it's it's a full-time job for me and many others yeah. at our firm. And then uh, scaling them up to have enough cash flow where an institutional owner would say, okay, there's enough cash flow here where I'm interested, but also um, it's it's uh, I have an institutional tenant 
I would never spend the time to acquire, let's say, a thousand uh, properties that are fifteen hundred square feet. Right. But because you have done that, I can now reap the benefits day one from that uh, scale. And so, it's one of the reasons why we think a why we think a portfolio premium will exist is because the amount of time it takes to scale up to a meaningful institutional size takes a lot of work. And then at that point, I mean, their their return threshold, what they want to make, I mean, they're able to pay, uh, you know, pay lower cap rates, pay bigger values for properties. They're getting cheaper debt than the individual buyer of one post office. They're, there's a lot of money out there looking for deals. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a premium on this one it, when it sells. be interesting to see how much. Um, yeah. And then what, uh, I mean, are there other strategies that you like? I mean, just kind of, um, maybe if we want to get off, we can get off the postal piece, but this other sort of niches you saw that you think would be uh, interesting for someone to explore. Some of the other asset classes that are, how do I say this? If you, if you look at a tertiary market in America, one of the largest, uh, landlords in those markets is actually or I'm sorry, one of the largest tenants in those markets is uh, is Family Dollar, uh, Dollar General, uh, and and other types of dollar stores. Um, Tertiary markets, I mean, really, we're sort of rural America, let's say, or whatever. Rural America populations, cities that have maybe a couple thousand folks. Um, And so a lot of postal owners that have uh, scale have actually started looking at... um, at dollar stores as an alternative, um, they tend to be double, triple net in nature as well. Um, and, you know, they did trade at pretty decent cap rates. Um, those have come down considerably as people have become more and more interested in the space. Uh, but I think that looking at asset classes where uh, maybe you don't have institutional um, dollars chasing or an asset class that has really good sales is something worth considering as well. Uh, one thing that I've considered, uh, uh, or I've been looking at as well after some conversations with some other postal owners and some other, um, general macroeconomic trends that I've seen is, uh, you're starting to see a lot of private equity companies move into, uh, spaces like uh, like drug rehab clinics or veterinary clinics or uh, other different types of real estate that in general is uh, there's macroeconomic trends around around the importance of that type of real estate, but it hasn't necessarily been institutionalized to scale either because uh, like the the drug rehab clinics or vet clinics, Maybe they have more ma and pa owners. Um, there's aggregators out there that are aggregating and increasing the credit profile of the industry on the whole, but it's not there yet. It's it's similar in it uh, being like a single tenant retail slash office building, uh, and there just being opportunities to scale in a similar niche fashion uh, in the future. Seems like there's much more. Uh you know, just like urgent care, plasma centers, all sorts of stuff that, um, you know, is like a new type of retail almost. Certainly there's a lot of money behind it and a lot of trends in its favor. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, you, know, you saw similar things in, uh, in like the dialysis clinics in some yeah. parts of the country. And it's like, uh, 
it's a similar type of uh, idea where if you can scale them enough where they're meaningful to an institutional investor, uh, it, you know, it, ju- it just poses an interesting question uh, where if you have enough cash flow being generated from small properties, do they over time become institutional because of the like aggregate cash flow you can generate? And I, I like to think so. I think one, one thing that, uh, and I'd be curious how you guys have thought of this, that I've, I've kind of thought is like uh, one of the main barriers, if you will, to like whether this will work for a roll-up strategy or not is really like the the next buyer, whoever buys the portfolio, like how they would manage all the properties. So one thing that I've always thought, like I have uh, a bunch of apartment buildings is between, let's say, two and $30 million, like at, none of them have any on-site employees. So then if you sell it as a portfolio, they really need to figure out the management uh, none of these have property, you know, people working at them where I think for like, say multifamily, you could get a, seems obvious you get a portfolio premium if you have stuff like what they already buy and then, okay, we'll sell you 10, 200 unit deals that are kind of like what you normally are looking for, but we just already kind of bundled it up for you. Um, so I've always kind of thought in my apartments, like there's not a portfolio premium because it's, it's kind of like m- mom and pop management or more just sort of, you're going to hire a third party. Uh, that's like local to the market, not, so if it's an institutional buyer from, you know, whatever, New York, they don't, they're used to the certain sort of like institutional size management companies. So yeah, what do you guys think? Who, how might they manage um, these postal properties like the next buyer? So uh, the USPS has a national contract with a, basically a property management group that helps them um, have conversations with landlords that make sure that their maintenance is being handled correctly. Um, our property management team internally has excellent relationships with them. We have internal systems to help make sure, uh, their requests are being answered timely and likewise they do too. Uh, and so, um, I think if, if someone were to acquire us one day, they would have a choice. They could try to build out a property management team that's similar to ours, or maybe if there would be an interest, they would end up absorbing our property management group. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So then you, you have, um, cause we've only talked about the acquisition. So you've also built up a property management team. So then you got, yeah. Cause the, the, I think what maybe you referred to as like the postal service, like their company they use, they don't manage the properties. They just sort of manage the request process where they will request you to do something or they'll work on the lease renewals. It's a, company I'm thinking of, like they'll do that as well. Is that what they're uh, doing? Le- lease renewals actually are separate in the USPS. And, and right now that relationship is handled by JLO. And I have, well, we have some commercial tenants where JL does like everything for them. That's why I was wondering if it was like that. Like they'll submit the maintenance request even to us. Oh no. They don't, we don't talk to the tenant nearly at all. It's right. interesting. It is. We try to, but then they, but it's always like JLL with uh, even the maintenance request or whatever. They do the camera act. Uh, audit and all that. Yeah. Interesting. So then that, that could be a part of it where we could have a team that already is managing these. That makes a lot of sense in terms of why, uh, I mean, that would certainly help like a, a buyer who's not sure, like how would I, we run all these things. I think a big piece is going to be if you have a one-off post office and there's, you're responsible for some of the maintenance, like that needs to be figured out by the next buyer. Right. And you guys already have that built out for them. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's another benefit of scale. Uh, if, if, if you have uh, enough properties, it's worth your time to hire somebody that's solely dedicated to this and they're professional and they 
handle property management administration in a professional manner, as opposed to a single owner who's uh, maybe close to the post office, maybe not. Um, They have to figure out uh, how to handle these capital expenditures on their own. And it's, it's just a, there's a benefit to having scale and knowing what matters at these properties and, and being an institutional property manager. I feel like it benefits the tenant as well. And it's, it's one of the, one of the benefits that I think is associated with a larger owner is that, uh, I, I think that the property management requests will be handled in an institutional manner. Great. Well, I think this was, it was great, Mike. I mean, I think let's, let's wrap it up, but, um, if someone wants to get in touch with you, I mean, maybe they got a post office that they want to sell. I mean, how, <laughs> yeah. do they, how do they find you? So if they're, if they're a post office owner, uh, the best way to, to find us is there's, uh, we have a website, American-Postal.com. And if there is uh, interest into reaching out to me directly for any other reason, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, I'm Michael Mazur. That's M-A-Z-U-R. Great. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes or in the description. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Really appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, it is the Rise and Invest show. We're going to have a lot of different guests on. Maybe not everyone's going to have acquired 400 plus properties, but our goal with the show is we're going to get into the weeds on uh, actually doing the deals, you know, raising capital, finding deals, getting all sorts of different product types, having principles on people doing the deals, uh, lenders, attorneys, just whoever you might work with, uh, actually doing a deal and try to get maybe like deeper into the weeds and what you'd see in like a regular book or, or class. So stay tuned for more and like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.